This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Pioneer Crusader Against Modernism Pope St. Pius X Modernism is a difficult term to define because it has so many parts. No definition could possibly sum up all of the errors contained within it. Fighting against it is rather like playing a game in which one defeats an adversary only to have another arise. The fight against modernism includes tearing down its component parts. Relativism, indifferentism, postmodernism, the so-called woke agenda, and so on. While this is necessary, it can never totally defeat the thing itself. Like removing a weed from a garden, crushing modernism requires digging out the root. Today, the Return to Order moment presents an essay about the man who defined and fought against modernism during the early 20th century. In the July-August 2014 issue of the TFP's Crusade magazine, Mr. Ben Broussard discussed the crucial role of Pope St. Pius X. Quote, I will go unto the altar of God, the God who gives joy to my youth. Psalm 42, verse 4. On June 2, 1835, Giuseppe Melchiore Sarto was born in the remote settlement of Riza to Giovanni and Margarita Sarto. The oldest of eight children, at a tender age, Giuseppe displayed an aptitude for learning. Though of humble means, his parents did all in their power to assure he was given a first-rate education. A favorite of students and teachers alike, Giuseppe excelled in all his endeavors. But what attracted his attention most was daily service at the altar. Though it required a great sacrifice from each member of his family, the money was found for him to enroll in the seminary in the famed city of Padua. He outshone all his classmates in every subject but his ever-present humility and affability securely barred the door to envy and bad will. The day finally came for the ordination of young Giuseppe Sarto, who had to receive special dispensation from Rome upon completing seminary studies in order to be ordained at the age of 23. The solemn ordination left a deep impact on the new father Sarto, who promptly carried out his first assignment. The distant farming village of Tambolo had one major vice that horrified the young priest on his arrival. Nearly everyone in town had a penchant for swearing. Desiring to correct this widespread defect, Father Sarto first sought to go about winning the hearts of his new flock. He took interest in their occupations and their daily toils, to the point where large crowds gathered to converse when he passed on the streets. Noting a desire for learning among the uneducated, the future pope proposed to start a night school in the village. Many of the men protested, saying, How can we repay you? We have no money to offer. What can be done in return? Stop swearing, came the swift reply from Father Sarto, and I shall be more than repaid. He later confessed to sleeping only four hours nightly, zealously applying all his waking hours to good works 
study, and the life of prayer. To raise funds, he would often preach missions in the neighboring towns. But more often than not, this wealth would not reach home with him. He had given it all away. Of far more value to those coming to seek his aid would be the zeal he would show in doing good works for their souls. A word of encouragement to one, a sound piece of advice to another, even a firm but kind reprimand when one of his sheep was going astray. What began in this small hamlet of Tombolo would be mimicked throughout his long ecclesiastical career. After nine years at Tombolo, the villagers were very sad to see their beloved father go, though his promotion as pastor in the large town of Salzano surprised no one. Although he arrived on an oppressively hot day in July, the church was packed with curious faithful, eager to hear their new pastor preach. To their great astonishment, his eloquence and directness led this more discerning audience spellbound. The year 1873 marked a devastating cholera outbreak in Salzano. Father Sarto became all things to all men, doctor, nurse, sanitary inspector, as well as parish priest. He tenderly sought the sick and the dying, who trusted him to see to all their needs, both bodily and spiritually. To prevent the spread of the disease, burials had to take place at night. Father Sarto assured that all of the ceremonial of the church was carried out, recited all the prayers for the dead, served as pallbearer when the need arose, and even helped to dig the graves. Quote, the priest is a man obliged to hard work. Priest and hard work are synonyms. Unquote. This saying was constantly on Father Sarto's lips, himself living it out even to the point of exhaustion, his strenuous labors catching the eye of the Bishop of Treviso. When his name was proposed to fill a vacancy as canon of the cathedral, no time was wasted in preparing him for his new post. Among his duties at the cathedral, Monsignor Sarto now looked after the seminary as spiritual director. He threw all his energies into his new assignments, showing particular zeal in the formation of new priests. Young seminarians felt at ease to come to him with any problems, and his door was always open to receive them. The ardor with which he lived out his priesthood reinforced everything being taught by the faculty. Monsignor Sarto took upon himself the task of preparing children for First Holy Communion, and his public preaching became famous throughout Treviso for its impeccable delivery and profound content. In 1879, upon the vacancy of the See of Treviso, Monsignor Sarto was appointed and consecrated bishop. In 1884, Pope Leo XIII appointed him Bishop of Mantua. In Italy, at the end of the 19th century, the anti-Catholic forces were mobilizing to eradicate any influence of the Church on society. This persecution could be seen within the confines of the Church as well with many modernists taking important posts in Catholic universities and seminaries, promoting many errors of the day, including secularism, liberalism, and relativism, 
while asserting that the church teaching must conform itself to the present era. The newly appointed Bishop Sarto of Mantua confronted these modernists head-on, boldly affirming the perennial teaching of Holy Mother Church amid the partisans of what he would famously call the synthesis of all heresies. Bishop Sarto first went about the task of uniting the clergy to fight these pernicious errors. In a letter to the pastors of his diocese, he enjoined his fellow apostles, A priest's life is a continual warfare against evil, which cannot fail to raise up powerful enemies. In order that they may not prevail against us, let us be united in charity among ourselves. Thus, we shall be invincible and strong as a rock. Unquote. Later, he directly addressed the people of his diocese with powerful words that summarized the program he would spend the rest of his life carrying out. Quote, we must fight the capital crime of our day, which is the substitution of man for God. We must illumine with the Ten Commandments with the evangelical councils, and with the institutions of the church, all the problems that the church and the gospels have so clearly and triumphantly resolved, in education, in family life, in private ownership, in rights and duties, we must restore Christian equilibrium among the difficult conditions of society, we must pacify the earth and inherit heaven. This is the mission that I must carry out among you, restoring all things to the reign of God, of Jesus Christ, and his vicar on earth, the Pope. Unquote. Bishop Sarto became well known for his defense of Catholic principles, which earned him the respect of even the liberals and anti-clericals of the day. The Catholic forces lionized him for lending great support to defending the rights of the Church. The sudden passing of the Patriarch of Venice in 1893 hastened Pope Leo XIII to nominate a replacement, and Bishop Sarto of Mantua was his natural choice for the post. As had happened in his previous assignments, his flock was sad to see him leave, but not surprised that such a gifted son of the church should be called to greater pursuits. Relations with the Italian government of the day were strained, and the civil leaders claimed the right to nominate all ecclesiastical posts in northern Italy. Bishop Sarto, now elevated to cardinal, had to wait 16 months before being allowed to enter the city and take his rightful place as the city's patriarch. At Venice, the anti-clerical faction had seized power. The Masonic lodges arranged blasphemous demonstrations in the city streets, openly mocking the real presence and other Catholic doctrines. To counteract these brazen attacks... Cardinal Sarto organized a Eucharistic Congress of Reparation for the week beginning August 8, 1897. The week consisted of a series of grand processions, powerful sermons, and sublime liturgies. The Congress closed with a Eucharistic exhibition at the Church of San Rocco, 
where sacred vessels spanning the centuries were carefully displayed, showcasing the fine Venetian craftsmanship in honoring the Blessed Sacrament. At the closing procession, Cardinal Sarto gave the solemn Eucharistic benediction before throngs of the faithful gathered at the banks of the Venetian lagoon. This awe-inspiring culmination of the week of festivities honoring our Eucharistic Lord had repercussions throughout Italy and abroad. No one could doubt the future Pope's incomparable devotion to the Blessed Sacrament and his unshakable faith in the power of the well-executed ceremonials of the Holy Catholic Church to evangelize. At the age of 94, Pope Leo XIII lay on his deathbed, having spent himself for 25 years as head of the Church on earth. The cardinals from around Italy made the journey to Rome in the summer of 1903 to offer their final farewells to their dying father, and on July 19th, the venerable pontiff breathed his last. The Patriarch of Venice approached the conclave of 1903 with such certainty that he would remain at his current post that he had purchased a return train ticket with borrowed money. At the first session of the conclave, Cardinal Sarto was surprised when he received five votes. However, he became disturbed when his votes increased at the second session. From the third session, he grew increasingly alarmed, begging his fellow cardinals, Forget me. I have not the qualities requisite for a pope. Unquote. It seemed there would be no arguing with him on this point, as he continued to insist the cardinals choose another. As the majority of the votes settled on Cardinal Sarto, Monsignor Mary Delval, who worked as a secretary in the Vatican, was sent to deliver the message. Not finding him in his apartment, he sought him in the nearby Pauline Chapel. Upon entering, all was still in the quiet sanctuary. Monsignor Mary Delval looked toward the far corner, where he saw the elected cardinal kneeling on the floor deep in prayer, his face buried in his hands, his eyes streaming with tears. As he knelt beside Cardinal Sarto to whisper the message to him, the cardinal reiterated his refusal to accept. Monsignor Mary Delval later wrote concerning this first encounter, quote, in the face of such suffering and anguish, the only words I could summon were, Take courage, your eminence. The Lord will help you. The cardinal fixed me with a penetrating glance and murmured, Thank you. Thank you. It was the first time I had been near him, and I felt that I was in the presence of a saint. Unquote. The following morning, with Cardinal Sarto conceding to the persistent pleas of his colleagues, he was elevated to the papal throne as Pius X, the 256th successor of St. Peter. Pope Pius X wasted no time, expending all his energies seeing to the most pressing needs of the Church. His first encyclical, titled E Supremi Apostolatus, unequivocally stated his position, quote, 
we champion the authority of God. His authority and commandments should be recognized, deferred to, and respected. Unquote. At the heart of his desire to restore all things in Christ was an abiding trust in the Blessed Mother, consecrating his papacy to Our Lady of Confidence. Marking fifty years since the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception, his encyclical Adium Illum Letissimum expressed his uncompromising confidence in the Queen of Heaven. Quote, the Virgin will never cease to help us in our trials and to carry on the battle fought by her since her conception, so that every day we may repeat, Today she again crushed the head of the serpent. Unquote. Pope Pius soon had to openly engage in a battle against the Church's external enemies. The anti-Catholic government of France confiscated all church property in the country via a law of separation passed in 1905. In his encyclical, Vehementer, he manifested his resistance. Quote, They, the church property, belong to the worship of God and have been ruthlessly confiscated. The Church was faced with the choice between material ruin and the surrender of her rights given by God. She courageously refused the latter, though this meant the loss of all the world's hold valuable. We lose our churches, but the Church remains secure. Unquote. This bold stance won him the admiration of fervent Catholics and the respect of the Church's declared enemies. But his fight next moved to the battle inside the Church, where modernists whom he had continually fought still spread their errors. The decree Lamentabili was his opening salvo, explicitly condemning 65 erroneous doctrines followed by the encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis, which represented a devastating blow to these dissenters. Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira later underscored the great victory marked by this encyclical. Quote, If St. Pius X had not denounced the modernist heresy, the world would have quickly marched toward pantheism and atheism. As a result... The whole action of communism all over the earth would not have met the enormous obstacles it did. Unquote. In his zeal to build up the church, the saintly pontiff saw no better means than that of encouraging frequent reception of Holy Communion. At the time, such a practice was rare, even among the religious of certain countries. Pope Pius X sought to counter this tendency by issuing a series of decrees encouraging the daily reception of the Blessed Sacrament as a remedy for the many evils threatening the world. Though not without opposition, this paternal gesture was hailed by fervent Catholics in countries around the globe. The text of the decrees struck to the heart of the matter— confronting the erroneous notion that frequent communion was only for a select few. Quote, 
Children have need of him that they may be formed in habits of virtue. Youth have need of him that they may obtain mastery over their passions. Maidens have need of him that they may preserve their innocence untarnished. All men and women have need of him that they may advance in virtue and carry out faithfully the duties of their state in life. There are none who can afford to neglect this great source of spiritual strength, none who can do without him. Unquote. Pope Pius X made his desire crystal clear in a subsequent decree, lowering the age of reception of First Communion from 13 to 7. Hearkening back to the example of our Lord, he began, He was indignant at the children being turned away by his disciples, whom he rebuked in these grave words. Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. He then underscored the danger of the postponement of First Holy Communion. Quote, it is that the little ones, being in the happy condition of their first innocence, stand in the greatest need of that mystical food on account of the many snares and dangers of the present time. Unquote. Just as in other matters, he has Pope led by example. Children from all parts of Rome were invited to the Vatican, where the Holy Father soon won their hearts by his simple preaching and ever-approachable kindness. He loved to give them their first Holy Communion with his own hands. Letters soon came from children of all countries, expressing sincere gratitude for being able to assist at the heavenly banquet, delighting the Pope to no end. Even during his life, the faithful from many lands attested to miracles, and he always bore the dignity and gravity of his office. Though most witnessed the sadness in his heart at the impending war he foresaw by many years, the goodness he continually showed appeared more angelic than human. Those closest to him knew he was happiest in the presence of children, his innocence perfectly at home in their midst. With his passing on August 20, 1914, after a reign of only 11 years, the world hardly took notice as the horrors of World War I soon engulfed Europe. He had left a permanent impact on Catholics worldwide, and great pilgrimages began to his tomb once the war concluded. A silver cross was embedded in the floor of St. Peter's directly above his tomb as the crypt could not accommodate such great numbers. The bishops of Italy began the process for his cause for canonization, and in 1952, Pope Pius XII beatified his predecessor after the approval of two miracles. Two more miracles followed shortly afterward, the healing in Naples of a lawyer with a severe pulmonary abscess, and a French nun suffering from a rare virus attacking the nervous system. Over 800,000 crowded St. Peter's Square for the canonization mass. Since that great day in 1954, 
devotion to St. Pius X has increased worldwide, and he continues his monumental work of restoring all things in Christ. Let us continually have recourse to him for all our needs, most especially for the triumph of the Church in our days over her enemies, both internal and external. Sancte Pie Decime Ora Pronobis. This concludes Pioneer Crusader Against Modernism, Pope St. Pius X. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T. F.P.